shame is a very powerful emotion that truly paralyzes you, that stops you from doing things, that stops you from aspiring, that stops you from trying. The hostility that you feel, one of the purposes is to make you feel ashamed and to hinder you, to make sure you don't fight back. Isabel Rogal, and this is Borderline. When Mertela Kunova raised her hand to be interviewed for the Borderline series, exploring the experiences and identities of global citizens, I asked her if she had any themes in mind, a red thread through her life that could guide our conversation. Well, she said, have you thought about shame? No, I, I hadn't. And what ensued was a profound and deeply personal conversation that raised a lot of things for me about the weight that immigrants carry, about how xenophobia is internalized and can hinder us, but also how we can rise nonetheless and fight the shame others might put on us. Mertela is Slovak. She's the editor of journalism.co.uk. After a life journey that saw her travel from a Soviet republic to the Far East and back to the European Union. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Marcella. I was born in Slovakia. Well, I was born in Czechoslovakia at the time. And I was born in family with my mom, who was from Slovakia, and my dad, who was from Czech Republic. So from day one, I learned to speak both languages which in, in a federal republic, usually people can kind of understand each other language, but they will rarely be able to speak. And I suppose this opened up horizons. I just realized that there is not just one country in the world or one language in the world. I think from when I was a child, being bilingual or, you know, the knowledge that the world is bigger than one country was just normal to me. So I suppose it, it all kind of started there. So you, you didn't stop there. Where else did you live around yeah, the world? So when I was 18, I went to Japan. Now, I never really necessarily planned it. I found a job. Uh, so I lived there for six months. And the kind of plan was, you know, work for six months, come back, earn enough money and go to university. And that kind of didn't materialize because I, uh, from Japan, I went to Italy. And instead of going to university, I did vocational studies. And after three years, I left for France. I lived there for seven years, seven years. And then I left for the UK. And here I am. And you never went home in between? I actually didn't. No. I mean, apart from, you know, visit or holidays, I have never returned to Slovakia, no. What made you go from, huh, maybe I'll go to Japan, to I'll spend my entire life living outside of my country? <laughs> I know, right? Um, you know, I think the, the, the fact that I never planned made that nothing really happened. Um, in a sense, you know, I didn't plan to stay away or I didn't plan to, to return. And because there was no plan, I was just taking it one step at a time. When I went to Japan, I needed a job. <laughs> it was the very short story of uh, of those times. The unemployment was extremely high. There was absolutely no way I could find work in Slovakia. I certainly not as a 
18-year-old. When was this? What year? Uh, that was 2001. That was 2001. I mean, when I was young, there was no such thing as, I don't know, fast foods or McDonald's where students would get a job. There just weren't these possibilities. You had work or or nothing. <laughs> you know, you were not doing sort of student jobs. So I could never probably earn enough money to go to university. I come from very um, well poor background. I'm not going to use any euphemism there. My parents couldn't support me. My sister was studying already and I could either work or work somewhere else and try to earn more money than what I could earn in my home country. And yeah, so there, there, there was this job and I said, well, six months, I can do that, come back and study. And then it just never, it just never happened. You know, I was pushing it and, and pushing it forward and, you know, and, and then one day it didn't happen for 20 years and I never gone back. Mm. That's interesting. I think looking back, people are always tempted to put a very coherent narrative on things but often when you're in the middle of it it's just what's available right now looking a month ahead or two months ahead but you rarely really plan a life do you no i suppose what makes the the biggest difference is that i never really felt i have anywhere to go back to i didn't have a good relationship with my family going back would mean start again so I could as well just start again somewhere else, apart from being a, a you know citizen of a country and, and being able to speak language, which is not negligible, but I never felt like I had, you know, those roots where I can go back or this safe harbor where I can go back. For me, I could have gone to Slovakia, but it would not have been going back or going home. It never really felt that way. Mm. So how did it feel being abroad as a young Czechoslovakian <laughs> in countries where I assume you didn't speak the language in Japan or in Italy or no or uh, in France or in France <laughs> <laughs> so how does that work when I was 18 I was completely unequipped to deal with what what was going on around me I've been always a tinkerer I've been always like I can do that you know if I if I try hard enough I can do anything and I've learned Japanese. Well, I've learned Japanese. I was able to have a conversation in Japanese <laughs> within a couple of months. I could get by. I was working in a karaoke, which it's not like you need the most rich and profound conversations to have with, with people. So I, I could get by and I was working with a fellow Slovakian, so I wasn't completely isolated. I mean, there was someone I could speak to, but that felt temporary. I just thought, Six months is it's long, but it's not forever. So I can deal with that. When I came to Italy, I really wanted to stay there. I, was, I, I needed to go somewhere. Going back to Slovakia was not really an option at the time. And I just tried really hard. I went to language school. I obviously needed a visa. But at that time, so that was 2002, I, I don't know how much you know about Italian politics, but <clears throat> there was really a time where uh, Lega Nord, so the Italian far-right party was really gaining power, especially in northern Italy. And the anti-immigration rhetorics and the anti-immigration sentiment was really strong. One anecdote that really illustrates it was when I decided to become a beautician, because I didn't have any better idea of what to do with my life. So I went to this you know, beautician school, 
The fee, I still remember, was 2,000 euros a year. And I obviously needed visa. So I went to the school and I said, is there any possibility to pay a deposit in case I don't get a visa so <laughs> I don't lose two grand? And the secretary kind of looked me up and down, making absolutely sure that I sensed that, that gaze and said, well, it's not possible. And I asked why. And she said, well, clearly what you want is a visa and then God knows what you're going to do with it, implying obviously I was a prostitute because I was clearly Eastern European and blonde and young. So what else could I possibly want in my life than being a prostitute and not study at a school? And the resolution of that was even more humiliating that this, my the then boyfriend came with me to the school, confirming that I am his girlfriend and not a prostitute. And therefore that validated it basically, you know, an Italian said, I'm his property strange way then I was allowed to pay a deposit and apply for visa and, and uh, yeah then I got it and I could study but just the constant suspicion or how do I say you know not only make you feel you don't belong just make you feel like you should be someone else or you should never aspire to be who you are not meant to be kind of um that was really tough I mean that eventually made me leave after three years Wow. Um, tell me about a bit more about that when you said it makes you feel like you shouldn't be who you are. How does that play with your sense of identity, which is already complex when you when you live in a bunch of different countries, as you did? I mean, listen, being I mean, being young, you know, being in your early 20s is tough as it is. Lots of people struggle with their identity and who they are, when they belong. So when you form this identity in a place where you, well, you genuinely do not belong by the fact that you don't know the language, you don't know really anyone there, that obviously doesn't make it any easier. But I think one of the things that I've learned very quickly was to feel shame. I think it's something that is really important to talk about, uh, especially when people are foreigners, because Shame is something that gets put on you in a way. You are made feel unworthy or inadequate or you can't do something because you, you are not good enough to do it. And I internalize it because I did not know any Slovakian, not even any foreigner for that matter. I lived in a very small town, so I was really sticking out. <laughs> And at, at the time, I... I didn't have words or concepts to think about how someone is making me feel. I genuinely believed I was not good enough or I have to try twice as hard to get half the recognition or I probably deserve to be treated this way because I am trying to, you know, live a life that doesn't belong to me. I don't belong to this place. And, you know, it, it took me years to understand that I don't have to accept this or there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. But, you know, shame is a very powerful emotion that truly paralyzes you, that stops you from doing things, that stops you from aspiring, that stops you from trying. It can be something as little as because you feel shame for your accent, you will not correct a waiter if they get your order wrong in the restaurant and it's something you hate because you don't want to speak up. I didn't understand it at the time. I understand it now with hindsight. This hostility, you know, when you talk about sort of far right and racism, the hostility that you feel, one of the purposes is to make you feel ashamed and to hinder you, to make sure 
you don't act or you don't aspire or you don't fight back. Mm. You know, you just made me realize something, which is back in journalism school in the US, I didn't go into radio because I was very self-conscious about my accent. So I've always loved radio. I've always, it's always been my primary medium. I've always wanted to do podcasting and all that, but I didn't until this year. And a lot of it was with shame, which I didn't realize until now. Wow, you <laughs> just blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> and, and so many foreign, you know, and I mean, it can go to different degrees. And obviously, sh shame, it's a universal human emotion. It's really, really important that we have this conversation because shame is linked to vulnerability. And, you know, vulnerability is never good, right? Because it's equal with weakness, but that, that's not it. And I know so many foreigners or people who just go to, to a different country who, who suddenly freeze. You function at 10% of who you are because you are just ashamed to open your mouth and speak with an accent because of the fear of being judged or maybe being laughed at or being just told you are somehow not good enough, your accent is not good enough, you don't belong. And this fear... Of, of not belonging or need to belong is one of the fundamental human instincts. When someone tells you, you don't belong here, you don't have the tribe, you're not going to be accepted and protected, that is extremely scary. If you're in a place where, where you don't know anyone or where you do not belong and you try to belong, I, I do understand why many foreigners genuinely do feel paralyzed to a certain degree by the shame of being who they are or to speak up or to just appear foreign or sound foreign because you do get pushback. How much of that do you think is imposed from the outside? People telling you you don't belong here and obviously the, the Northern League is the most obvious in your face expression of that. And how much of it is just internalized from mm -mm. all the insecurities that you usually feel, especially in your early 20s? Absolutely. So, you know, shame is um, you, you do need to learn to accept what people are telling you. So someone who is talking much better about shame than me is an American researcher called Brené Brown. And mm -hmm. I urge all your listeners to look up her TED Talk on shame. One of the things you need to learn is to care about what other people say. And then you, you do. You know, whoever says, oh, I don't care, is probably not perfectly honest. But one thing that I've learned to, to deal with, the feeling of shame, is that you realize that you don't have to take what someone wants to give you. Someone says, you are not good enough because you can't pronounce R or because you don't sound good enough, you can't be on the radio. You don't have to accept that. You can say, oh, I'm a great presenter and I really love this show. And my French accent is actually really cute. You don't have to accept what you hear. But to arrive there, you need to have some degree of sense of self-worth and you need support. I don't think anyone can just do it on, your, on their own. You need to have some kind of root, some kind of base where you can draw this strength from and push back. And I think many people, when they go abroad, this support network weakens. Family and friends are far away. They are not you know, so much part of your everyday life, even with all the technology and WhatsApp and Skype and whatnot, you don't feel that safe. And when you don't feel safe, 
you fly to fight or freeze. I think it's really important for people to know that they don't have to accept it, but to arrive there, you need to have some source of strength. Where did you draw yours from? My strength? Mm-hmm. I suppose the short answer to this would be therapy, where I, for different reasons, finally decided I need to just sort my head out. And that's where I learned loads of these things. My whole life, I just wanted to do things. I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to study. I graduated with um, distinction, despite the fact that I barely spoke the language. And I am a very determined person. I have always been a very determined person. I think that it's my character trait. You know, I had to build lots of resilience when I was a kid. And there's probably feistiness is part of my character. So sometimes when I get really, really pushed around, I get very, very angry and I fight back. And I suppose that kind of kept me going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you would you would have to. <laughs> um, no, but you'd have, I mean, to, to do the things you did without necessarily a lot of family support, you would need to have that strength. I love that you, you talk about therapy because I think mental health comes with so much stigma. And I think especially in immigrant communities, um, there it's it's harder to talk about or it's less talked about. Hmm. But, you know, I think one one thing where there, there is this conversation happening around sort of mental health, there is another conversation happening about sort of innovation and change and resilience. And I think we somehow don't link the two. Being vulnerable to me is the condition of innovation or change. You need to admit anything can happen. I'm not safe. And yet I try and yet I act and yet I do something. This vulnerability is the the fundamental condition of actually doing something, making a change or, you know, do something that has never been done before. And I really would like to normalize this conversation around just simply just vulnerability. When you're a foreigner in a foreign country, you are more vulnerable. It, it's, it's just a fact you don't have a support network. You, you don't really know how the system works. You have to work it out. If something happens to you, you might not have a safety net. You are objectively more vulnerable than if, if you were back in, in, you know, in, your, in your country. And, and sometimes this vulnerability also just gives you the opportunity to be creative and to do things, to try something new, to, to turn your life around or to, or to create something at work or in your personal life. And it can be a fantastic source of strength and of inspiration. But of course, it's the great irony that because of, e- of all these extra difficulties, when you're an immigrant, you put the walls up, right? Because, you know, there is that aggression that's coming from the outside and because you might be a little lost in a new place, um, you put the walls up as a defense mechanism, which, you know, you know, is the opposite of what you're talking about, which is, you know, leaving leaving um, space and leaving a door open for change and for personal innovation. Mm. I, I mean, I think putting some defense up is probably a good idea because when you feel vulnerable, you need to do something to make feel safe. And then you can draw the strength from there when you grow. You know, it's a bit like when you're a little plant and you grow in a <laughs> little glass house, you first need to grow a little bit to be able to be planted outside. 
So I think it's probably necessary to put certain degree of defense mechanism in place initially until you feel strong enough to come out of that shell and and then go for it. Where it starts to be a problem is when you just remain in that shell because shame keeps you there and you still don't feel worthy enough to, Isabel, go out and have your radio show or have your podcast or be in front of the camera and when it actually hinders who you could be and who you aspire to be. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Marcella. Don't go away. Just a quick message from your host. I need 11 more patrons just to keep the lights on on Borderline. That's not for my time. It's just to cover the basic software cost of producing the podcast, transcripts, editing, website, etc. I need 11 people to pledge £5 a month. And my goal is to find them by Christmas. So if you want to help me end this awful year on a good note and keep Borderline going into 2021, please go to borderlinepod.com or look for Borderline on Patreon and become a member. All it is is a pledge of £5 a month. That's a nice latte these days. You can also pay in euros or in dollars, so don't worry about nasty bank fees. You'll get every episode early, more content, access to live events, and join a growing community of global citizens. And you'll make me very happy for Christmas. In fact, to those next 11 members, I'll definitely be sending a Christmas card with some swag, maybe a cure package, maybe I'll bake. Who knows? For 11 people, there's a lot I can do. So be one of those early ones. Go to borderlinepod.com or look for Borderline on Patreon. And thank you so much for listening and for helping me do this. I think you hit on something that's interesting, which is that all these things that happen to you when you're a new immigrant, they often happen to you when you're young as well, because most immigrants, you know, it's a decision they usually make earlier in life. You have a lot of fewer middle-aged new immigrants because it's just a different time in life. So you, you're doing things that require a huge amount of maturity while you're not very mature yet because you're 20 years old. And those two things collide for a lot of people, I think. Oh, God, yes. And I always say I never, ever want to be 20 again in my entire life. It's hard because, you know, you are meant to act like an adult, which you technically are, but then you are not. And, <laughs> you know, I suppose even just knowing language of a country where you go is a massive help. It wasn't a case for me. And when you, your vocabulary is full hundred words, and you just can't express what you're trying to express. It's almost like when you're a toddler, you know, and you, you have the emotion and you don't have words to express it and you throw a tantrum because you just don't have any better way to express them. And I wasn't throwing many tantrums, not that I remember. But, you know, it, it emotionally gets really tough to have ideas, to have very clear idea of what you want to say, but not have the vocabulary to actually express it or not having the concept to express it. Again, that kind of shame comes in there because this is what I can ask for. This is what I need, but I can't. I'm not able to. I'm not capable of. And then you start to scale back on what you need or what you can ask for because you just, you know, practically cannot put it in words. When you're building your life, your you know career or studies or relationships, that initial phase of being able to understand and also be understood is extremely important. I'm curious then why, after you had finally mastered that in Italy, you moved to France where you had to start all over 
Are you a sucker for punishment? Why? (laughs) Put like that. Um, No, the simple truth is that I I had to leave Italy where the situation became for me untenable personally and professionally as well. Mm. And I met someone, simple as that. And I moved to France with him. So I followed the love. I moved to France and I moved to Alsace to be more precise. I took some time to heal, I suppose. I took about three or four months where I just really, I just need to breathe and get over everything that happened in the last few months in Italy. And I took this time to learn French, which, as you know, Isabel, is a very complicated language, mm-hmm. especially pronunciation-wise. So, you know, talk about being self-conscious. But, you know, within, what was it, five months, six months... I went and applied for a job and I finally went to university <clears throat> age 23. Um, by the time when my um, sort of schoolmates from high school were finishing their masters, I only started the first year and it was all worth it. You're in the UK now. Yes. How long have you been here? Uh, since 2011, so nine years. Okay. Okay, so that's pro- that's your longest. That is my longest streak. Yeah. <laughs> is it home now? Is this for good? Do you think you're going to be traipsing around the world again, or how do you feel about uh, the future? You know what? I genuinely hope not. I had my fair share of starting over, and it should get easier every time. But I think it got more difficult every time, mm. especially when I got to the UK. I just fell off again. <laughs> It's just, it's wearing, it's really, it's tiring. So if, unless anything happens, I hope this is it. I bought a house, I'm married, I have a dog, uh, as if uh, I like this country. And one thing that really changed for me and circling back to your sort of behavior or, you know, feeling of vulnerability or shame, despite everything that people say, UK is a much more tolerant country on the whole than any place I've ever been. Not like they are not racist or they are not people who are xenophobic, but at least it is socially unacceptable. Whereas in places where I lived, you could openly belittle or threaten a foreigner. It would be encouraged. Making someone feel like they don't belong or that they are potentially in danger was encouraged. It was seen as you know, a sort of sign of patriotism. And in the UK at least a certain degree, I think people manage to suppress that and to genuinely promote tolerance as a value. And I never felt as welcome in any country as I felt here. Mm, That's interesting. I think we have a different, very different experience (laughs) of the UK. (laughs) I Um, suppose it very much depends where you're from. There is definitely a thing like sort of international hierarchy of of countries where you can be and varies from cool to embarrassing. I would think that as an Eastern European, you would have a harder time than I do Mm. because of the the bad cliches that come with (laughs) Brexit. But I think for me, the UK is the first place that I feel like I've really been made to feel like an immigrant. Um, Mm. And I think... I think it's probably because I arrived right right after the Brexit referendum and then things right. just, there's just a political discourse. I, at the same time, I mean, 
agree with you. I have found London to be extremely welcoming. I've found the journalism community to be extremely welcoming, more than even in my own country. Like in Paris, I always felt like an outsider. And so that's been really lovely. And kind of like you, the more into my late 30s I go, the less I want to pack everything up again and start over because I've done that five times. I'm over it. But um, but the politics are I f- are the ugliest politics that's, that I've had to experience. But then again, I wasn't in Italy with the Northern League, so... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you do... Um you know, you, you do point some something really important, and that is that since the Brexit referendum, things are changing. And I think people are just are more on the edge, and the sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric is definitely growing. And I'm not even sure people entirely understand it. There are concepts that become commonplace or they just become accepted, you know, or foreigners or your Europeans, I don't know, stealing jobs or whatever. And, you know, it's something that would be, you know, laughed at before the referendum. Now it became this sort of universally accepted truth um, that no one even, no, no one, but the few people really challenge. And that climate of hostility is becoming a little bit more normalized. So I, I do partially feel it. Yeah, I think... For me, it's oddly um, made me a bit more aware that I am part of the whole immigrant experience. By that, I mean, as a white woman on an EU passport, I'm incredibly privileged when I travel around the world. And I never really have to ask myself many questions about where am I allowed to go and where will I be accepted and things like that. And suddenly with the whole Brexit discourse, it's like, oh, right, I am an immigrant, actually. And it's jolted me, shook me out of this complacency and this selfish attitude in a way to, it's pushed me to think about the whole immigrant experience and the and the whole of immigrants as a group that should be in solidarity, even if we all have extremely different experiences. I think it's it's woken me up a little bit. 100% and you know I, I lived outside of European Union I went through visas and, and permits to stay and permits to work and permits to, to do whatever and how many times I am traveled through the border and were controlled by armed police I have that experience and I think people underestimate how much things can change after Brexit you know um, it's not because mm-hmm. UK was part of the European Union that it will forever be accepted. And I think the, the, what worries me the most is that hostility very often gets mirrored. When you get hostile towards a community or country or state, it very often comes back. And I, I don't want to see that happen. I don't want to queue at any border anymore and <laughs> having my yeah. you know fingerprints being taken just in case all these experiences are again, are humiliating, not because you should be ashamed, but because you might feel like you don't belong or you're potentially not good enough. Yeah. I had that experience for the first time, the last time I entered the UK. Mm. Um, and it was it was pretty traumatic. The, a border patrol woman, border force, whatever they call it here, who stopped my car and asked me like four times, where are you going? Where are you going? I was like, I'm, I'm going home. Here I am driving a British car. 
here's my British driver's license. Here's my EU passport, which gives me freedom of movement still, at least until the end of the year. But it was extremely aggressive. Mm. Um, yeah, and I'm afraid that that's going to become more common. Mm. And when you go and register your stay in a country and your picture gets taken like a mug shot and then your 10 fingerprints get taken. And I asked, there was in Italy, and I asked, well, why are you taking people's fingerprints? And please just look at me and say, well, for the future. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. <Okay>. You know, <laughs> so that sets the tone. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, 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 all, it all adds up. You know, it, all these, you know, I'm, I'm not talking microaggression. I'm talking about practical obstacles to you know to make you feel like you are safe or you are okay to be somewhere so yeah i very much hope we are not going to see that but from very practical experience and from just seeing what's going on around the world things might get more hostile at least that's what i'm preparing myself for do you think that all these attitudes are kind of like weaponizing the sense of shame? You know, I'm wondering if it's done with the knowledge that it will discourage people from settling here or or staying here because of that sense of shame or if it's just, maybe I'm overthinking this, maybe it's just basic human aggression. <laughs> I don't know. The interesting thing about shame is that it, it is correlated with violence Uh, with distraction, but also with eating disorders, depression or self-harm. Unlike guilt, you know, guilt is when you do something wrong and you make a mistake and then you feel you've done something that is not in line with your values and you feel guilty, that will correct your behavior. It will try not to do something so you don't feel guilty. Shame is not, I made the mistake, it's I am a mistake. It's not, I've done something wrong, it is I am wrong. So this shame, when you internalize it, it might very well contribute to self-harming, but it might also contribute to violence, where, where people who are ashamed will want to push back or fight. So this is where my biggest fear is, where communities feel like they have been somehow downgraded because of immigration, and they feel shame of not protecting their you know, national pride, etc. And then the shame put on the immigrants, you know, you don't belong, you, you are not good enough. And, and that can actually escalate violent conflicts, that the basis of it is really shame. And to go to your point, definitely make people feel somehow not worthy is an attempt to discourage them from trying to blend in or to assimilate. Um, because, you know, because lots of people see multiculturalism as a genuine threat to their coherent community and making someone feel not safe is an attempt to don't even try to settle. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. <laughs> You've just given me so much to think about. I hadn't really thought about the shame angle, but it makes so much sense at the individual and at the collective level to, to be looking at that and, uh, Yeah, shame, no good. <laughs> Don't <laughs> <Absolutely>. feel it. <laughs> <laughs> and th that is a very good conclusion. It, despite it, it is a universal emotion, you can give it back. 
if someone wants to make you feel ashamed, you can just say, no, that this is not for me. This is a parcel that arrived at the wrong address. Just, just take it back. I'm not taking it. And that, that is the only way to, to survive. Or survive to thrive. <laughs> Thrive we shall indeed. Maybe not in 2020, surviving is okay right now, but soon enough, we'll thrive. What Marcella brought home for me is the incredible danger of internalizing xenophobia and how it limits us in our own minds, in our expectations of what we can achieve and of what we should demand of ourselves and of others. I stand in awe and in eternal gratitude to people willing to open up their lives and share such intimate details with a nosy podcaster like me. So a huge thank you to Marcella Kunova. This was not a quid pro quo, but incidentally, I also recently spoke on the podcast that she edits, hosted by Jacob Granger. So if you want to listen to it, just look for the journalism.co.uk podcast on your usual platform or find the link in the show notes. If you too would like to come on to Borderline, if you have topics you'd like me to cover, ideas for guests that I should invite, please do reach out. Honestly, that's the hardest part of the job, and I'm always looking and open to recommendations. Reach out. I'm easy to find on all the social media or on borderlinepod.com where you'll find my email. Remember, you can support Borderline by becoming a member. I am looking for at least 11 people to get my accounts from red to green by Christmas, which is appropriately seasonal. So join now on borderlinepod.com or look for Borderline on Patreon, and you'll get your Christmas care package. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and also to rate and review and share the podcast with your friends. It really helps me to grow the audience and sign up for the newsletter. It comes out once or twice a week with a lot more goodness than I can fit into the podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal, and this was Borderline. Music by Diala. I'll talk to you soon.